0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Robert Bonney, Rubenstein Fellow at Duke University. Robert is an expert on many things, but we'll talk to him today about the role that forests play in energy, climate change, and more. I'll ask him about the past, present, and the future of wood energy in the United States and globally, and what role forests might play in helping to achieve deep decarbonization goals. We'll also talk about the challenges that this issue raises, including developing markets to incentivize reforestation, land use competition, and much more. Stay with us. Okay, Robert Bonney from Duke University. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Great to be here. So, Robert, we're going to talk today about forests uh, and a couple different aspects of, of forests, uh, both in terms of the energy system and also climate change. But before we get into that, we always ask our guests how, you know, you got interested in this field in the first place, how you started working on the environment or and on forests in particular.
1: Yeah. So I grew up on a farm in Kentucky and, you know, spent a lot of time outdoors, I was always interested in, in the outdoors and um, it was a go fishing a lot in the afternoon and hunting occasionally too. Um, my family also owns a um, and has for about 100 years a large uh, forest tract in uh, rural South Carolina. And so I got very involved in early age in thinking about how you manage forests for a wide range of benefits, not only timber, but wildlife, endangered species, and recreation, those sorts of things. And, and as a result, got very interested not only in sort of the management issues, but the policy issues around that. And so, I think my relationship to that that tract of land was probably really important in getting me to to a career that that is focused to a significant degree on forest policy.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And and you've been working on forest policy for for a long time, right? I mean, at least a, a couple of decades, yeah.
1: Yeah. So when I graduated from a graduate school at Duke in 94 and worked on longleaf pine ecosystem in particular while I was here as a graduate student and that that's continued and, um, and I've, you know, I've been pretty solidly working on forests
0: since. Yeah. Great. So we've got another, another Dukey on the show, which is fantastic. Go blue devils. I know many of our listeners will be angry at me for saying such, uh, such such heresy, well, but being, you know, being a
1: Kentucky boy, I have to say my loyalties lie with the with the um, Kentucky Wildcats. But
0: oh, okay, good. Well, so we've got some balance on the show. Yeah, then. exactly. That's good. Um, so let's get into it. Then we are going to talk, as I mentioned, both about uh, forests and energy, and also forests and climate. Let's start with energy. Um, one of the first things that I think about when I think about wood energy is um, a common story that you hear if you read energy history books, which is about the United Kingdom before the Industrial Revolution, and you hear these stories about the countryside being rapidly deforested all around London and and other population centers to provide heat uh, and other energy for the population. Once coal came along, that sort of gave trees some relief, at least in the UK. Um, But I haven't read much about the history of uh, forest use uh, for energy in the United States. so, uh, So I'm curious if you can give us some background on that.
1: Yeah, so there's no question the same is true to a significant degree in the U.S. A lot of um, forests, particularly around urban areas, there was a huge demand for for fuel wood and forests. And there's no question, if you look at old pictures from the 1800s, you'll you'll see a lot of denuded hillsides. And there's no question that um, fuel use was part of that. Of course, um, there were other uses as well. It wasn't long after the English had colonized the U.S. around Virginia and the Carolinas that they they saw how good the longleaf pine forests there were for ship masts and other things and or even the naval stores industry the turpentining that took place in in the south and the use of our forests later for for wood products and one of the interesting things about forests is the role that loss and that perceived loss of forest um contributed to conservation and conservation movement people like Gifford Pinchot and um Teddy Roosevelt, and so yeah, energy played a, a, an important role in, in uh, deforestation in the U.S., but it was it was broader than that. It was other forest product markets as well.
0: Right, so that makes sense. And forests weren't just used for energy, but but for other purposes. Um, but if we focus in on energy, one uh, sort of piece of data that I find particularly interesting is that uh, in the U.S. today, we we often think that we don't use uh, forests for energy all that much but um, that's because in the early 20th century you know the energy system there was a large share of wood in the system today it's only about two percent of total energy in the US but in absolute terms we actually use more wood uh, and more biomass today than we did through through the early 20th century so can you give us a general sense of where geographically biomass is produced in large quantities and sort of where in the energy system it's consumed yeah, and
1: so, um, you know, if there's, a, if there's a location right now for most of the biomass production is in the U.S. south, and um, you've seen the rise of, of uh, pellet plants in the, in the south that largely take both um, pines and hardwoods and turn them into pellets, and a, a good bit of that is actually being exported to Europe. Uh, and, and being consumed there. Some of it is consumed in the US. And you, you also see interest in places like the West to create markets for some low value um, timber to deal with the fire and other forest health issues. Um, one of the biggest challenges is that natural gas is cheap and that wood energy um, in a lot of places can't compete. And so, you know, when I was at the Department of Agriculture and working with the Forest Service, we were looking for ways to do large-scale restoration on our public lands in the West to reduce some of the fuel loads to deal with catastrophic fire. We'd love to have functioning biomass markets there. We could take some of that low-value timber and and turn it into something uh, useful and actually maybe not have to pay people to come get it off the land, but maybe actually have a market. And it's the lack of those markets in places that actually create some challenges for, for scaling up energy production in the U.S. around biomass.
0: Interesting. So can you explain a little bit about that uh, with fire suppression might not be the right term, but I, I'd never thought that uh, sort of timber could be used to reduce the risk of, of forest fires.
1: You know, for 100 years or more, we've, we've thought fire was a bad thing in the U.S., and so we put out a lot of the small fires. It was part of the argument that Pinchot and Roosevelt and others made for the U.S. Forest Service is that we were going to wage war on fire. And while those are two great conservationists that left a wonderful legacy, part of the, part of the problem was is that we, we'd get an ethic in the U.S. that suppressed all those fires, and so it changed the nature of our forests. It caused them to become denser. It caused them to have, um, where in many cases, we might have wide-open forests that were uh, periodically burned, either through lightning strikes or Native Americans used fire heavily. Those fires have changed. They burn differently. And so if we want to restore more natural conditions, reduce the threat of forest fires, we actually need to go in and do manipulations. We need to take some of that smaller timber out and reintroduce more natural fire regimes. And that takes markets. And one of the markets that could be really useful is actually biomass and being able to, to use that, that small diameter, smaller timber. And so there's a lot of interest in biomass markets in places like California in the West where the fire problem is big. The challenge is, is that it's hard to compete with cheap natural gas.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I'd never really thought about that, um, but it makes sense when you when you describe it. Um, turning back to the biomass energy question, um, one issue that comes up frequently in particular, there have been a number of news stories about um biomass consumption, particularly, as you mentioned, U.S. wood pellets being shipped to Europe, biomass is often considered to be a carbon neutral energy source because the carbon dioxide that's released when the fuel is combusted is uh, presumed to be uh, sequestered by replanting forests in equal uh, equal measure. And so I'm curious from your perspective, is that a reasonable assumption uh, here in the United States? And when we think about forest energy in the U.S. today, whether consumed domestically or internationally, how carbon neutral is that energy source?
1: So this has become a hugely controversial topic in, in sort of the forest policy world. And a lot of folks on the environmental side argue that the emissions from, from burning biomass are as bad or worse than coal. Others argue that it's carbon neutral. And the truth is there are different scenarios you could think about biomass being depending on where you harvest it it could be a good thing from a carbon standpoint it could be a less than good thing I think generally speaking it is um, it's a it's it's mostly very positive and I think um, from that standpoint yeah for the most point I think um, uh, biomass is probably carbon neutral opponents of biomass argue that um, you know, it, its uh, emissions are much worse, that it takes years to uh, re that carbon. What I would argue is I don't think they really understand the broader landscape of forests, certainly in the United States. When there are markets for wood, people invest in timber, they invest in reforestation, they keep forests as forests. And that plays a really important role in, in because most of our forests are privately owned, in retaining forests and keeping forests from being converted to agriculture and development. And so as you look at a landscape scale, having markets for wood is generally a, a very positive thing. Are there places where you could overtax the resource? Absolutely. But the other thing is that biomass is a very low value product. And so most landowners won't manage purely for biomass. They, they manage for, for solid wood products or other products that actually earn more revenue. So the notion that there's going to be large scale clear cutting or things like that from from biomass, I don't think is the case. And as I mentioned before, there are arguments for actually for sustainability in some of these low value uh, timber markets that actually could improve the um, ecological resilience of forests. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think we might sort of return to some of these issues in a, in a couple minutes when I ask you about deep decarbonization scenarios um, that involve biomass. But but let's turn for the moment to issues around uh, deforestation reforestation, afforestation, and and carbon dioxide emissions, as well as sinks. So as our listeners know, forests are a very important carbon sink globally, but deforestation has been a challenge for many years. Um, How would you sort of characterize the current state of deforestation at a global scale? And then how would you compare that to what we have seen in the U.S. over the last several decades in terms of deforestation?
1: The, the, the trends had actually been better in places like Brazil over the last few years. And, and with the new government uh, down there, there's a lot of concern about opening up parts of the Amazon. You start to realize how important government policies, land tenure, uh, infrastructure projects are in in large places like the Amazon. And, and so, you know, there, there's obviously a lot of concern in, in Brazil right now. And there has been a lot of concern in Southeast Asia with... with um, palm plantations and some conversion right. that happens there. As the think your question points out, a lot of people, when they think of deforestation, sort of think of other parts of the world. But in some senses, we actually have a deforestation problem in the U.S. It's masked by the fact that we also have areas which are, are returning to forests, marginal agricultural lands that are converted back to forests just naturally, or people plant trees. Um but we lose a lot of forest in the in the U.S. annually to development, housing development, commercial development, and also just fragmentation and the get, get divided, sold, and divided because so much of our forest is in private yeah. ownership. And so, as we think about the U.S. carbon sink, which is enormous, somewhere in the neighborhood of twelve to fourteen percent of our annual greenhouse gas emissions come back down in the in the forest sector, sequestered in those forests. As if we want to retain that sink and over the long term enhance that sink we have to do something about our own deforestation problem which means we have to value people have to have value for holding on to those forests that means wood markets are, are really important for that also means we need to think about incentives that incentivize people to to protect those forests
0: yeah that makes sense and I, and I think that might play into our the sort of next question I wanted to ask which was about a report produced uh, towards the end of the Obama administration called the Mid-Century Strategy for Deep Decarbonization, which... um which you pointed out to me in a previous email when we were planning for this conversation that uh, that the report called for large-scale greenhouse gas reductions from the land sector, including forests and agriculture. So can you talk a little bit about some of the recommendations that are included in that report and how um, land use, uh, in particular forestry and agriculture, can play into uh, deep decarbonization in the United States?
1: Yeah, so I mean, one of the things I just talked about was the existing forest sink. And if you think about just the scale of that in relation to to the rest of the greenhouse gas problem in the U.S., it's, it's pretty significant, particularly as you start to squeeze the uh, greenhouse gas emissions um, reductions out of energy, that forest sink looks really big. And so one of the things that the mid-century strategy points out is the need to hold on to our existing forests, and that involves, as I talked about, a variety of incentives and markets and, and, and other things. But the mid-century strategy also talks about increasing um, forest acreage by somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 million acres. That's a huge chunk of real estate. And if we're going to do that, we need to think about what are the investments we need to make to uh, to see that that happens. And, um, you know, it's going to, I think we've we've sort of lived in this world and in carbon policy, where we thought we were going to be in cap and trade, that there were going to be offsets, that companies were going to buy carbon offsets from forest landowners and farmers and others, and that that may still be the case, but I think it's increasingly clear that we're actually going to have to think about public investments in reforestation. On the agricultural side, there the agriculture is is uh, has net emissions of somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of eight to nine percent of U.S. emissions. There are enormous things we can do there related to livestock uh, methane, nitrous oxide emissions from fertilizer, and if we do it right, we're gonna we're gonna help farmers by improving their bottom line, making them more efficient, and maybe creating a, a source of revenue from things like uh, methane and turning methane into uh, into energy. And so, you know, when you think about this from a standpoint of the politics of climate change. Figuring out ways to win over those rural stakeholders to provide value for um, improving uh, the environment and, and helping uh, address climate change. That there's some opportunities I think to partner with rural parts of the country that could be really useful as we think about where, where do the votes come from to um, to win a battle in Congress on climate change legislation.
0: Right. So thinking about integrating not just the sort of um... Physical problem and economic problems, but also the political issues that are at play here. Yeah. Uh, Just a quick uh, statistical question. You mentioned 40 or 50 million acres for reforestation. Um, I don't have a sense in my head about how much, like, what is that? Is that the size of uh, a particular state in the U.S., or how would you sort of put that number in context?
1: Yeah, so um, forests once covered about a a billion acres in the U.S., today they cover somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 uh, million acres. And you think about—I think the state of North Carolina, somewhere in the neighborhood of 35, 36 million acres. And So, forty to fifty million acres of forest is a lot of land, and um, and it, you know there there is certainly marginal agricultural land in the in the U.S. And there are places even in suburban and urban areas where we might think about reforestation. But the size of the investment is pretty significant in the in the wake of the. Great Depression, um, you know the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. I think planted um, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, six million acres of trees, and that was a pretty big undertaking. And so we're substantially higher than that, and and so the the level of commitment here has to be pretty substantial.
0: Yeah, which sort of you know may, it makes sense that you would need not just sort of government efforts, but also markets, as you mentioned, to to sort of carry out those activities. That's right. So, let's look forward a little bit uh, and keep on this strain of, you know, reducing emissions through reforestation and aff- afforestation. You know, you mentioned the scale of the activities that would be necessary in a place like the U.S. to achieve some of these goals. How realistic do you do you see those um, efforts, uh, both in the United States and then internationally, to sort of reach that really large scale of, of reforestation or afforestation? And... As we think about the scale of that challenge, what are some of the difficult trade-offs that you would anticipate arising?
1: So um, as I noted, I think we have to be, come to grips with the fact that we're going to have to make significant investments in in the land sector, in forest conservation and, and reforestation. And for a long, long time, those of us who worked in this space had, had assumed that that was going to happen through a a market-based system like carbon offsets. And that may still be the case. Um, but I also think we have to recognize that there's probably a role for public investment, perhaps substantially. And if you think about it from a landowner's perspective, if a landowner is going to make an investment in reforestation, that's a that's a 20, 25, 30 year investment before they might be able to to reap some value from the forest themselves through through harvesting. And, and there's a lot of uncertainty with that, and landowners are going to be a little bit uncertain about, hey, is that carbon market going to be around in 25 years? Are the prices going to be um, uh, realistic to support my investment? And that's why I think we need to think about strategies that actually deal with that risk, and whether it's um, actually putting the government in, in, in the position of buying carbon, or somehow insuring it, or other things. I think we're going to have to think about beyond purely and um, and, and offset strategy. We also have to think, as I mentioned, about m- ensuring that there are ro- robust markets for timber, um, both biomass that we've talked about, but also it's increasing interest in um, wood as a green building material and building incredibly, even these incredibly efficient um, 13, 14, 15-story uh, buildings out of wood that, that, that look great, but also sequester carbon themselves and, and are energy efficient. And so we have to think about new uses of wood. Um, that'll be an important piece here. Um, you know, as I say, it will take, it will, it will take significant investment. It's not, it's not enough, I think, to think that that's going to be entirely a public investment. I think we're going to have to look at ways that markets can play a really important role either. And if you think about this uh, or, or as well, you think about this on a global scale, Um, um, and the acreages that have to be involved, they're significant. And I do think that means it's going to be both a a public and private investment.
0: Yeah. And so you just mentioned the scale of of the the effort that would be necessary. What are some of the sort of coinciding challenges or trade-offs that you would have to think about either in terms of land use competition or, you know, maybe political opposition to redeveloping forests in certain places? What, what are some of the issues that you think would come up in that context?
1: So it's a great question. On, on first blush, forests have enormous co-benefits, provide a lot of clean water. I and mean, if you live in the Western, you live in California, your water comes from the na- largely from the national forest, right? And so those forests act as a, a really important Watershed, a sponge that absorbs water, and they, you know, their wildlife benefits and clean air benefits. So there are enormous co-benefits here. But as you point out, there's also competition for land. One of the things that made um, folks in the agricultural business a little bit nervous during the Waxman-Markey debate in Congress around climate legislation in 2009, 2010. Was that if we create markets for offsets, we might be converting prime agricultural land into into trees. I don't think that's um, going to happen because uh, I think that prime agricultural land is still far more valuable. Um, but there are concerns uh, are far more valuable for agriculture. Mm-hmm. But there are concerns that that could in fact be um, be the case. And so, you know, we have to think about um, uh, where we make these investments. But we're also going to have to recognize that. You know, there's competition between agriculture and forest um, land uses, and if we're going to put more trees on more land, that suggests that we're going to have to intensify agriculture. We're to, have to get more going to feed nine billion, nine and a half billion people by 2050, and that means we're going to. Ha- it's going to be important that we produce more food from the same land base, um, at the same time that we deal with things like food waste and others, so that our food system is is more uh, efficient. But dealing with the land competition, ensuring we allow new technologies to allow us to produce more food food from the same amount of acres is is going to be really important as you think about trade-offs. I think that's one of the most important ones to think about.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, It's going to be so fascinating to watch watch that play out. Um, um, So last question now before we move to our top of the stack segment, um, which is… A similar question to what I just asked uh, in a US context, but thinking more globally and then thinking maybe a little bit longer term. So, one of the issues with um, forest energy and biomass that comes up a lot in the energy community or the integrated energy environment community, is when we look at the results of modeling exercises that are carried out under the IPCC process and other modeling exercises, many, uh, or perhaps most of them, show that achieving long-term climate goals like 2 degrees Celsius by 2100 or, or even lower requires enormous amounts of uh, biomass energy coming from forests, coupled with carbon capture and sequestration, so a uh, so-called negative emissions technology. And the scale of the energy um, implied by many of those modeling results is just really enormous and includes, you know, planting uh, and maintaining a forest that would be, you know, multiples of the North Carolinas that you described uh, in, in a U.S. context. So how do you think about the challenge of of that scale in a global context uh, when it comes to deep decarbonization?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's no question that it's a significant challenge. On the other hand, if you look at the history of forests over the last 50, 60, 70 years. There have been significant investments in in plantations in the U.S. and in plantations across the globe. We do not have a shortage of timber right now. In fact, if anything, we've got more timber than we can utilize. I mentioned my family property in South Carolina. We sold pulpwood 25 years ago, pulpwood being used for for paper production, we sold it mm-hmm. at a higher price then than, than we do now in, in um, both nominal and, and real terms. And so we've, we've actually done very well in investing in, in forest production. And so if we create incentives for landowners and countries to do that, um, our hi- our history tells us that that they'll respond to those incentives. But it means that we have to create value for standing forests. People have to want to invest in those forests. And that value can be created through its market incentives as well as as governmental incentives. Um, But that's ultimately what's going to dictate the the level of investment. And as I mentioned before, we also have a lot of people we need to feed. And that means the food system needs to get more uh, efficient in growing food on, if anything, a shrinking land base. Um, at the same time, we have huge issues related to food waste and other things. That's another area where we can get far more efficient. And so in some senses, climate change is going to me- mean our land use gets more intensive. We're going to more intensively grow forests in some places. We're going to more intensively grow food in other places. But it also means we, we need to make room for-, for wilderness and wildlife and other things. And so that's, that's another piece of the puzzle that we're going to have to figure out as well. I am optimistic that we can do it, but I think we also just need to be clear eyed about the fact that this is going to require, uh, as I've said throughout sort of public and private investment.
0: That makes sense. And so sometimes when I talk to people who are looking at these long-term scenarios and the role of biomass with CCS, they sort of immediately write off, uh, the, the role of forest energy as just unrealistically, um, ambitious in terms of some of those scenarios but you don't necessarily see it that way
1: no and of course um it's not going to be uniform everywhere um they're going to be they're going to be pockets where it's it's incredibly efficient um but you know we don't use quite as much paper as we used to um and and so there's a gap in the market in places and that's why you've seen um companies like Inviva and others in the south actually be able to come in and, and produce biomass they are um, producing pellets for for export and they're able to do that because there is there there's excess um uh timber supply in places like that and so again we've shown that, that um landowners will will respond to incentives um everything we think about in terms of climate policy is pretty ambitious, right? And the land sector is is equally ambitious. And so can I guarantee you that the sector will be able to provide what it needs to provide? No, but um, I'm also quite optimistic that there will be, if we get the incentives right, that, that the landowners and countries will respond.
0: That makes sense. And so fascinating learning about this stuff you know as i said at the outset this is not an area where i know a whole lot um or have done much research so so thank you so much for for sharing all of this uh, really fascinating discussion and so let's move now to our last uh segment of the show where we ask all of our guests what is on the top of your literal or metaphorical Reading stack, as you mentioned, it might not be a paper reading stack anymore. <laughs> it might be on your on your desktop uh, computer. Um, for me, uh, I've just finished a really fun book that doesn't really have anything to do with forests, but um, it does have a lot to do with energy. It's a book called Boomtown by Sam Anderson, who's a New York Times Magazine reporter. And it's based on a number of years he spent in Oklahoma City over the last several years. And it's, it's sort of a history of Oklahoma City, uh, including the sort of land rush in the outset of the city, which is really fascinating. And then it sort of zooms up to the present day, and it talks about the— quirkiness of Oklahoma City in in a variety of ways, and talks a lot about its basketball team, and talks a lot about uh, a guy named Wayne Coyne, who is the lead singer for the Flaming Lips, who is sort of an Oklahoma City institution, and it talks about city planning and revitalization, and, and obviously energy is sort of imbued throughout this book because it's Oklahoma City, and there's a lot of oil and gas sort of headquartered there. So, um, so if you want to learn about Oklahoma City uh, and have some fun while you do it, uh, definitely check out Boomtown. Um, Will do. But how about you, Robert? What's, uh, what's on the top of your stack?
1: So I'll give you um, uh, two books. One is uh, a book called Between Two Fires by a professor named Stephen Pine, who's been a real thought leader in sort of the fire history, both um, ecological and uh, the the political and policy history around fire in the U.S. and it's a story of how fire has been treated uh, over you know the last couple hundred years in the U.S. and particularly focused since um, the founding of the Forest Service and how the understanding and role of fire has changed both scientifically, but but within the agency and how. Organizations like the Tall Timber um, Research Station in Thomasville, Georgia, and, and, or Tallahassee, Florida, I should say, and, um, and the Nature Conservancy and others have, uh, have worked to, to change um, the way fire is dealt with in the U.S. And anybody who watches the news in the summer and sees these large, large fires, um, Pine's book will give you a, a sense of how we got to where we are today. The other book I'd mention is, and I'm not, I have only just started it, but is Sapiens and um, a great book about, um, you know, the, the homo sapiens. And one of the interesting things to me there is is the role of agriculture and the rise of agriculture in human society, the impact that that had. But the other thing that's really interesting to me is the role that early humans played in shaping ecosystems. You know, we think about... Um, in the U.S., we always sort of have this mythology of, of this great wilderness um, that, uh, that um, you know, settlers showed up to, to confront in the early years of, of, uh, of America. In truth, there were millions of Native Americans out there shaping the landscape and managing it with, with fire. And so that story is, um, is very interesting to me. And um, as I said, I'm not through Sapiens, but I, I would highly recommend both books.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So Between Two Fires and Sapiens. Sapiens actually was recommended a few months ago. We had um, Matt Lepore, who used to be the uh, commissioner of the Colorado Oklahoma Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, and and now he's in uh, the private sector. Um, But he recommended that book as well, so I'll have to add it to my own stack. Yeah, good book great well robert bonnie from duke university thank you so much for talking to us about forests and the role they play in energy ecosystems wildfire and uh, climate change and, and so much more
1: excellent good to be with you
0: thank you so much for joining us on resources radio we'd love to hear what you think so please rate us on itunes or leave us a review it helps us spread the word also feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes resources radio is a podcast from resources for the future RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, DC. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.